0: this week at Hope Point.
1: The sharp double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ is actually sermons that have been preached by God's messengers, pastors, to the church. And that's how we change. That's how we're cleansed of sin. That's how we're strengthened in a sinful world is when the messengers teach the message, which is the Word. And the only way that can ever become inefficient is when the messengers of God change the message.
0: When our plans end with disappointment and loss, we experience a loneliness that can make us feel we've been forgotten and life is out of control. In those difficult moments, we need to look again at the majesty of Jesus in heaven. As we read about Christ in the final book of the Bible, we see that He is no longer wrapped in human skin, but rather the fullness of His power and knowledge as God fills all the universe. His eyes see everything that is wrong. He misses nothing. He will make all things right. Even when the powerful enemy of death seeks to close the doors on a believer's life, Christ stands ready to unlock those doors and set his people free. Therefore, his message to those who love him yet suffer in this world is clear. I am life and I am love. I spoke the first word in history and I will speak the last. Do not be afraid. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from Revelation chapter 1. In
1: 1678, John Bunyan released his book, Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory, a story of a man who was looking for peace, founded in Christ, and began a journey uh, to the city of God. In less than 15 years, just in England alone, 100,000 copies of that book in the 1600s would be sold. When China opened its doors to Western literature in three days, 200,000 copies of Pilgrim's Progress were sold. It's now been translated into 200 languages. An estimated 250 million copies are in print. What makes the book so interesting, it was written by a man who was in the midst of the loneliest period of time he had ever experienced, serving a 12-year prison sentence for preaching the gospel. It's amazing. Can God really take the loneliest times of your life and produce something so beautiful? Today, I want to look at another book that was written by a a man who's experiencing great loneliness. One of the disciples of Jesus Christ, uh, John, uh, a pastor, persecuted, exceedingly lonely. And in the midst of his prison sentence also for preaching the gospel of Christ, he writes the book of Revelation. And today I want to look at that call that God gave him, beginning in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John... Your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is an island, a rocky island, located in the Mediterranean Ocean about 40 miles off the uh, west coast of what would be modern day Turkey. In the first and second centuries, the Roman uh, government would exile its worst prisoners. They wouldn't put them in prison. They would put them on islands because they considered them to be the most dangerous offenders. So you say, well, what would John's offense be so dangerous that the Roman government would have to do that? Well, he was a preacher. He proclaimed Christ, and the state came after him and exiled him off of the coast of Turkey. And he tells us at the end of this, I was there because of the word of God, his preaching, specifically the testimony I had about Jesus Christ. Now, according to the second century writer Tertullian, John had been tortured fiercely in Ephesus where he lived. And then that didn't kill him. So that's when they made the decision to exile him the rest of his life on the island of of Patmos. It was the ultimate solitary confinement And it wasn't like somebody being sent to Alcatraz. Interestingly, also called The Rock, uh, which existed outside of San Francisco from 1934 to 1963. The worst federal prisoners were sent there. But if they tried to escape, all they had was a mile and a half swim to, though it was shark-infested waters and terrible currents, a mile and a half swim to the shore of San Francisco. John was 40 miles away from land. He was not leaving that island. And it really was his suffering there that caused him to be able to feel the suffering throughout the kingdom of God in the Roman Empire. That's why he says, I, John, your brother. He's writing to other believers. And look at this title that he gives himself, your companion in suffering. This really should shock you knowing who wrote this five decades earlier. He's walking with Jesus Christ as one of his disciples, and one day he pops the question to Jesus, hey, you think when your kingdom comes, can I have one of the better seats at the table? Same guy. But now he's not interested in titles, honor. All he wants to do is to know and love suffering people. Oh, how his heart had been changed through suffering. You could spend your life putting yourself in situations in which you are noticed and honored, or you can spend your life getting to know those who are suffering in this world. John said, I want to know suffering people. I want to know the church around the world, from here to the inner city to India, those who suffer for Christ. I want to describe to you a little bit more of what John was feeling in his suffering. He was an old man now, it had been 60 years since he had walked with Christ on earth. And on this aisle, he, had, he knew he was the only one of Jesus' disciples that were left. All, 12 of, all, all 11 of the apostles had been killed for their faith in Christ, for their preaching. He alone was alive. In addition to that, this was probably A.D. 96, A.D. 95. A.D. 70, he had heard about the destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem by the Romans. They came in, A.D. 70, and they killed several hundred thousand Jews, In addition to wiping out Jerusalem, the Romans went to a thousand other villages and killed Jews in those cities as well. And so here was John thinking about all those verses in the Old Testament where one day Jerusalem would be the adored city of the world. And he said, God, what is happening? How can Jerusalem ever have a future if it's now been destroyed? Also, what broke John's heart was the situation and the condition of the church you know anything about the book of Revelation, John was writing to seven churches. Five of the seven had already caved into the pressure of the world and compromise had so gotten into those churches that they were becoming ineffective. And actually they were having the opposite effect. They were pulling the witness of Christ down in their their cities. So it would be natural for John to feel that everything was going the wrong way, that um, Christ's kingdom was falling apart, the churches were falling apart, and eventually evil would triumph in the world. So when you think about the book of Revelation, you need to be thinking about it was written to a man who's experiencing massive discouragement, and he needed to remember who Jesus was. And that's exactly what happened in chapter 1. On the Lord's Day, I was in church. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus. That's where he lived before he was exiled. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and they're all in the region that we now call turkey back then they called it asia minor well the lord's day is a reference to sunday Um, the early church changed the day of worship from sabbath to the next day the lord's day because it was the day that he rose from the dead so he said i'm in church which was day uh, normally where we'd celebrate the resurrection of jesus christ but today we celebrated something else we celebrated the soon coming of for the second time of Jesus Christ. He says, I was in church on the Lord's Day on Sunday, but this day, it wasn't a normal worship service. I was in the spirit. He said, what does that mean? Well, it means that God communicated to him in a way that did not involve his physical eyes and his physical ears. Deeper communication in his spirit, allowing him to see things that our eyes cannot see in the physical world. He saw heaven. And he saw the invisible Christ. John tells us that uh, he heard a loud voice. Anytime the word loud is used in Revelation, it means that the one who speaks is full of authority, and what he's about to say is filled with urgency. And here the urgency was, it's time to write a book. It's amazing, these words, write down what you see. (laughs) Write down what you see. This is his call. Imagine a man on this island. Write the book of Revelation. That's when it happened. And that message would be, spent, would be um, sent to those seven cities. The churches in those seven cities. And the message would be, faith, be faithful until my return. I will reward you and I will judge the world. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. You need to know when you read the book of Revelation, it was written in what's called apocalyptic literature. It was real hot during those days to write apocalyptically. So John said, I'm just going to use what everybody is comfortable with. I'm going to write apocalyptic literature, which meant a lot of times you talk about good and evil using massive symbols and imagery. It's just It was just a smart thing to do. It's what the people were used to. So here he's talking about these seven lampstands, but fortunately for us, it's not a mystery. We know exactly what they are. He tells us in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now what's the purpose for a lampstand? You light it to make a dark room light. What's the purpose of a church? To bring the light and life of Christ into the world, to shine the the light of Christ and say this is dark, come out. Into the light of Christ. But the seven churches were no longer shining brightly in Asia Minor in Turkey. This is why Revelation was written. They were ineffective. They were not witnessing. So Jesus knew that, and now he tells John, the churches need to be revived if they are going to be a light in a dark world. And among the churches was one like a son of man. So Jesus Christ was about to tell John, I walk among the churches of Asia Minor. And what he tells you today is Jesus Christ says, I have already walked into this building today. Never underestimate what is happening in any church service. Jesus has walked in here to see our reaction to his preached word and his holy name. He is here. Things are larger and more important than you can ever imagine on Sunday night. Morning. So how do we know this is Jesus? Well, I'll put some references at the bottom, really, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When Jesus was alive on earth physically, 81 times he referred to himself as the Son of Man. It was one of his favorite titles to say, I'm one of you. But to really understand the identity of the Son of Man, you have to go back to the Old Testament and Revelation, interestingly enough, looks back to the Old Testament 400 times. It's a book that looks to the future, yet to understand it, you look to the past. 400 times it takes something out of the Old Testament. One of its favorite Old Testament allusions is the book of Daniel. That's when we find out who the Son of Man is. 600 years before Christ came, this was written about Jesus. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before, before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the prophet Daniel had no idea exactly who this was going to be, but he knew one thing, that in the future there was going to be a human king who would wipe out all the kings and kingdoms of this world and would establish one eternal kingdom. And that king was called the Son of Man. Revelation, Jesus says, that one is me. I am the coming king who will establish an enduring kingdom. Now, John is able to see into the spiritual realm, and he sees a picture of Jesus he had never seen before. And look at this picture of Jesus that he sees. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in all of its, of its brilliance. Think about what's happening to John here. He had hung around Jesus Christ for three years. Jesus had ascended to heaven. But the only thing John ever saw about Jesus was he was just a powerful, miracle-working human. I mean, it's like, John's 5'10", Jesus is 5'10". Like, he's a man. He's got a lot of power, but he's a man. Now, 60 years later, at the height of his discouragement, Jesus unveils the true picture of who he's always been when he wasn't clothed in skin. Can you imagine what John saw? This is the most glorious, dramatic, overwhelming description of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. John's exiled on an island. The church is being persecuted by the state, oppressed by culture. It's led to a lot of compromise, and everything around John looks like chaos. He feels alone. And so he's asking the Lord, Do you see what's going on? Do you see all the attacks on the church? Do you see all the compromises by the church? And the answer from heaven of the massive Christ is is basically this. Jesus is the king of the universe who works in the chaos as he walks with his church. And that's the theme of Revelation. He works in the chaos as he walks with his church. Now I want to look more closely at this vision because it's a very exciting description of our Lord. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. Well, that's the language of a priest. If you read the Old Testament, Exodus 28 through 30, every time you read what the Old Testament priest looked like, this is what they were wearing. A robe and a sash. So it's telling us that Jesus is a priest big one, but he's a priest. What's the job of a priest? In the old Testament, they, the people would come and they would try to connect with God and the priest would connect them to God. The priest would care about them. The priest would pray for them. So we know that when Jesus compares himself to a priest, he wants you to think prayer. Somebody is praying for me. Jesus says, that would be me. Hebrews 7 25 says, therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to pray for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. You know, when you read about Jesus in the gospels, it's exciting when he's praying with the disciples and for the disciples. My favorite one of Jesus' prayers is at the end of his life, the night before he was to die on the cross. Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17. Protect these guys from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. Lord, your word is truth. And I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. You're here today because Christ has prayed for you. That's how you got to church. The church has survived for 21 centuries because of the prayers of Jesus Christ. But as we see in this first chapter of Revelation, Jesus is much more than an ever-praying priest. He's an ever-purifying king. Look how he's described here in verse 14. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Well, we might not know who that was, again, if it were not for the book of Daniel, telling us this is God. And since Jesus is described the same way that God is, you pretty much pick up quickly in the book of Revelation, Jesus is equal to God. Let's read that Old Testament description of God. It sounds very familiar. Thrones were set in one place, or thrones were set in place, Daniel 7. And the Ancient of Days, talking about the eternal existence of God, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court was seated And the books were opened. So here we have a scene of a great judge. Here, not a priest, but a judge. In Daniel. And the books are opened because God is about to read the books of what humanity has done. And to pass judgment on the world. It's a promise that God sees and that God judges based on what he sees, which is a description of Jesus there in Revelation 14. His eyes are like blazing fire. This is who Jesus is. It is amazing that the hope of Christianity is that this Jesus exists. As we see him portrayed in Revelation and the hope of the world is, I hope He does not exist." This is a Jesus who says, "I'm omniscient. I have seen everything. Nothing has I have missed nothing. All the activities on earth I have seen. So again, when you're surrounded by chaos and you're prone to ask God, do you see what is happening? You need to picture and imagine exactly what John saw Jesus Christ with fiery lasers coming out of his eyes. He sees it all. So, when you're tempted to say, Do you see death and disease, Lord? You see injustice and poverty? Do you see the violent and the vile? Do you see political insanity? Do you hear spiritual blasphemies? Do you see your people, God? Do you see me? God says, I see it all. Not one millisecond of the chaos will go unaddressed. It's all recorded in my books. And I will issue my verdict and my sentence at the right time. But you know, the important thing about the blazing eyes of Jesus in Revelation is their first are directed to the church. Because a lot of people read the book of Revelation and say it's a book about God judging the world. That will come, but not first. The first thing that God does is He judges His church, purifies His church, because God will not be a hypocrite. He will not be mocked. How could He ever fault the world if the people of the church are doing the same thing that the world is doing? So the first people that Christ looks at with his laser-focused eyes are the behavior of those who claim to be his people. So he will purify our hearts before he will judge the hearts of the world. Now we move from Christ's eyes to his feet and to his speaking. Revelation 1.15 says his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters this is our lord this is jesus his feet are bronze bronze that just have just been crafted out of fire why bronze because it was the strongest metal that people had that in that day much stronger than gold much stronger than silver bronze was the weapon of warfare machines and war weapons were used at, were made out of bronze it is a reminder that jesus christ is coming to wage war against sin i mean he died on a cross to eradicate our sin he's always in the process of waging war against sin ours and all of the world he wants his people to be pure and not given to sin and the voice of Christ, I like how it's described here—is the sound of rushing waters. If you were on the Isle of Patmos and the Mediterranean Sea, the mighty waves of the Mediterranean were breaking against that rock island, you would hear it so strong. People that I have read that have been there said it's so strong that sometimes you can't hear yourself talking to somebody next to you. It is a reminder that the voice of Jesus Christ will never be drowned out. He's speaking now and he'll have the final word. So how does Jesus Christ speak to this world have you ever heard him speak I have not how does he speak well he speaks through his messengers he speaks through his church to his church and to the world and this is what John tells us in the, in the right hand of Christ he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double edged sword what does all that mean well, fortunately, Revelation doesn't live us in mystery. It tells us who the stars are in the hand of Christ. Verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, you could say I'm going to read that literally and believe that Jesus Christ has appointed a personal angel for every church. That would be cool. Probably make, make cleanup faster and moving chairs around and... That's cool if we have an angel. I don't think that's what it means. And the reason I don't think that's what it means is, have you ever heard an angel preach a message? No. So why would God assign an angel to the care of the churches when the angel doesn't speak to the church? Well, the word angel, angelos, often is translated messenger. So I think what this is, The seven stars are the messengers that are placed to care for the churches. It's talking about pastors, teachers. Those who teach the word of God are his messengers, his angels, his voices to the church. And how do they speak to the church? Through the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Scott's verse. Verse. So the, the sharp, double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ is actually sermons that have been preached by God's messengers, pastors, to the church. And that's how we change. That's how we're cleansed of sin. That's how we're strengthened in a sinful world. Is when the messengers teach the message, which is the Word. And the only way that can ever become inefficient is when the messengers of God change The message, which was happening in the churches of Revelation, compromise, caving to pressure. The messengers were changing the message, which is why the book of Revelation was written. There's a lot of pastors in the past two to three years have become very confused about their mission. They've been pounded by a thousand different voices giving them a thousand different agendas. And many church leaders have folded under these voices. And they have lost the courage to point people to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the answer for the world. You know, the older I get, the one thing I've become better at is identifying the voice behind all the voices. Because whenever I hear a voice that says, preaching is ineffective, we ought to do something else, I know that's not the master's voice. Because he's always been glorified by using a weak vessel and the foolishness of preaching to change the world. I mentioned a minute ago the imprisonment of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He could have gotten out anytime he wanted. The authorities said, if you'll just quit preaching the way that you do, you can go. Had a family of five at home. Said, I'm not going to quit preaching. That's right. The truth. This is how he said it to them. I will stay in prison until the moss grows on my eyelids rather than disobey God. That's right. So what do you think John's response was when he saw this magnificent image of Christ like us he's undone so that's who you are wow i thought you were this five foot ten jesus or as will farrell says an eight pound nine ounce baby jesus <laughs> bigger than that revelation one twelve. when i saw him i fell at his feet as though dead Full of fear right now. Full of fear because he realized, as you have in different parts of your life, you had missed Jesus. Wow. Thought he was like you. He is, but praise God so much more than you. How did Jesus react to this? Verse 17, then he placed his right hand on me. Isn't that tender? Place his right hand like on his shoulder. Said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys. Of death. So John was afraid. And Jesus calmed his fear with three. Reminders of his own attributes. Jesus is God. Jesus is life. And Jesus rules death. So how do we know that? Is that something I just made up? Thought it would be encouraging? Nope. Verse 17, when Jesus says, I'm the first in the laugh. And nobody can say that but God. Nobody can say they're the first. Because when you say the first, that means there was nothing before you. (laughs) That language applies only to God. I'm the first and everything came after me. And now Jesus says, oh, that would be me too. I wasn't created. I've existed as long as God the Father has existed. We are equal. I am God. Second thing he said is we saw in there that Jesus is life. He is life. It's important. He is life. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. This is far more than just a reference to the resurrection, which would be good enough. But it's a reference to why the resurrection happened. Because Jesus, by his very nature, is life and he cannot stay dead. He's always been alive and always will be alive. And this is what causes us to marvel, marvel at what happened in the life of Jesus Christ that he would lay down his life and be dead for three days, yet he was the living one. Can you imagine that just for yourself? Let's just pick out a number if you had been alive for 100 million centuries and every life on earth derives its life from you and you allowed your creatures who you gave life to to take away your life. That's what Jesus did. And think about this. The only way that the living one could ever not be alive is if he wrapped himself in something that could die human skin. The greatest, this is the greatest mystery and mercy in all of human history that the living one would volunteer to die. You will never appreciate the cross of the crucifixion of Christ until you realize the one who died there is called the living one. And when you look down your path ahead into your future and you see your encounter with death, you need to look down and you need to see the footprints of the living one. He's been where you're about to walk. He's been there before you and he will be there with you. He is the living one. And finally, Jesus told John, I rule, I rule over death. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys. I hold the keys of death. This is why it's impossible for a believer to ever remain dead. Because the one who holds the keys holds them. And this is what makes these verses so tender. Remember how all of this started? John said, I was terrified when I saw him. Why is John terrified? Was he afraid? I think it's the kind of fear you experience when you're ashamed. Because he had forgotten who holds the keys. Maybe the Roman government holds the keys. Maybe culture holds the keys. Maybe violent people hold the keys. He had forgotten that Jesus holds the keys of death, and he was ashamed, and therefore he was afraid. You know, whenever, when somebody gets afraid in Scripture that they're in the presence of God, you know, it happens a lot. Do you know why they get afraid? Or the people that I, the the big three that I know? When Isaiah became afraid in Isaiah 6, why was he afraid? Because he knew that God could see in his heart. When Peter was on the fishing in the Sea of Galilee and he became afraid of Jesus on the boat, why? Because he knew that Jesus could see in his heart. And here John, why is he afraid? Because he knew that Jesus had, saw, had seen fear in his heart. And in each case, with Isaiah and Peter and John, whenever somebody comes to Jesus and is afraid, do you know how Jesus responds? Don't be afraid. I know you're weak. I know that you have um, you're exhausted not thinking clearly the pressures and the pains of this world the sorrows of this world have weakened you but you know what Jesus says hear me saint I'm not going to demoralize you for your weakness hear me death does not have the key to your future so you don't have to be controlled by the fear of death You don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to avoid death because it does not control your future. I do. John, when somebody dies in your church because you preached a message and they went out in boldness to stand for Christ and they got killed by the government because of your sermon, you need to understand that it was I who decided it was their time to die. Not the government. I hold the keys to death. Death is not in charge of this world, John. I am. So don't be a slave to those who boast that they have the power to control you. I control your future, John. I and I alone. And I have the power of everyone's future. And I am the living one. I'm a God of life. Don't be afraid, John. John, there is nothing uncertain about the future. I hold the keys to the door that will get you into heaven. The loving hand of the living one holds the keys to your future. And the moment that death closes the prison door behind us, Christ unlocks the other side and leads us out to live with him forever.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.